Hey guys, uh, welcome to Communication Keys. I'm your host, Consul Nume Chili, and I'm here today with Professor Jennifer Irwin. Uh, Professor Irwin, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How about you? I'm doing good. Thank you for asking. Um, to get started, let's just uh, introduce you. Um, so, where uh, where did you go to school? Like, what did you study? And what did you study? Well, uh, if we start with undergraduate, I I did a double major in. Anthropology and Creative Writing at the universe, the universe, Western Michigan University, sorry. I have a master's in library and information science from the University of Washington, okay. and my PhD in business strategy from the University of Oregon. Okay, so how did you jump from, because uh, I know anthropology is like the study of uh, societies or human yep. societies, Yep. Um, and creative writing, <laughs> all the way to like business. It's a long, wandering road, right? Yeah. Um, I did my undergraduate, and I did work-study working at the library. Mm-hmm. And that translated into a full-time job at a local library. And after working there for a few years, I decided I wanted to be a librarian. And to do that, you have to get a master's degree. So I went out to Washington, I got my master's degree, and I got a job at a public library in Rapid City, South Dakota. Okay. And... Working there, I had a really amazing director who saw absolutely no reason why our little library in South Dakota could not do everything the Seattle Public Library did. And what that meant was constant change for our organization, constant change for people's jobs, continually trying new projects. And sometimes these projects worked really, really well, and sometimes they flopped horribly. And it occurred to me that I did not understand why that happened. I didn't understand how organizations worked. Mm. And the more we did this, the more interested I got in how organizations functioned. And it turned out that to understand organizations, one of the best places to study that was at a business school. So I went to University of Oregon to get my degree in business strategy so I could understand how organizations work and how they deal with change. Okay, so yeah, that's definitely an interesting story. So like at the um at the library, is there anything that you do you remember that stood out in terms of like why projects worked or that's Well, uh, I think what it really came down to is that sometimes uh we as management did a really good job of explaining to our staff why this project mattered and how it was going to make their jobs better. Uh, you know, when, when you ask somebody to change their work, they get stressed, right? They yeah. know how to do their job as it is. And you say, we're going to take this thing you know how to do, and we're going to make it something that you don't know how to do. And if you give people training so that they feel confident in it, if you explain to them why this is important to them, how it's going to actually make their jobs better instead of worse, it helps to bridge that gap. If you don't do that carefully, people just are really, really stressed about the change and they don't want to do it. And when you're relying on your staff to uh, offer new services, to do new things, and you don't give them the motivation and the training so that they feel confident to do it, it can be really hard for people to do. They'll drag their feet because they're anxious. And so you have to find a way of reducing that anxiety for them. And I think on the projects that worked well, we got people excited. We explained how it was going to be a lot of fun for them because a lot of these projects were things that were letting us interact with our uh, our public more effectively. Uh, getting to talk with them about books, which is, you know, if you work at a library, almost everybody who works at a library loves talking about books. So if you've got something that says, hey, 
I'm going to make more of your job talking to people about books you love, they can get excited about that. But if instead you explain this as, we're going to add an extra service that you have to do that's going to take up more of your time and make your job harder, they don't want to do that. So it depends on how you talk to people and how you support them. You know, Make sure that they've got the tools so they feel like they can do this well instead of feeling like they're going to go out and fail. And so sometimes we did that really well and sometimes we didn't. And we, yeah. you know, <laughs> it was a little bit of trial and error. Librarians don't get a lot of training in being managers, but most of them work in management. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's interesting that you say that, like, the dynamics of it all, like, what... Like, what makes people, like, accept change better? Because um, in one of my classes, we've been talking about, um, it's called Leadership Theory. Mm-hmm. And we've been talking about, um, like, we were reading this book. It's called Why People Do What They Do or something um, okay. along, those line, along those lines. It's just, like, it's talking about how do you motivate people. Right. Um, and, like, it's easier to motivate, motivate people when, like, you acknowledge, like, how they feel. Yes. And then you let them see, like, what's going to happen from change. Like, what are the benefits from change? Yep. And then it makes them kind of more accepting. So it's kind of like, that's pretty much exactly what you were saying. Like, yeah. That so, lines yeah. up really well with my experience. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So um, when I first reached out to you, um, uh, I believe I made the mistake of assuming that you, was, uh, you worked in or you studied organizational behavior. Mm-hmm. But you actually study organizational theory. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I did make that mistake. Can you just, like, uh, help us discern between the two? Okay, organizational behavior generally focuses on the behavior of people inside organizations. Mm-hmm. So it's much more focused on the internal aspects of the, of the firm. Mm-hmm. The areas that I study in organizational theory and organizational strategy focus more on the interactions between companies, Although it does touch somewhat on the interior of the firm, but the focus is more on the behavior of firms themselves rather than the behavior mm-hmm. of the people inside the firms. So it's sort of a, a higher level yeah. and more group level, honestly, because a lot of what I study is culture and group identity. Personally, strategy looks more at the organizations themselves. Okay. So when you say group identity, that's referring to the groups of businesses together? Uh, it's it's referring to groups of people. So Little some of my research, for example, is on professions and how professions as a collective group of people, uh, I figure out who they are as a group and how they're going to act as a group, how they defend their boundaries of what their profession is okay. and their status in society and things like that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I'm in a weird in-between place, honestly. Okay. <laughs> I definitely I understand what it is now. I was I was just assuming that it was like like businesses together like um I don't know like McDonald's might work with like the business that provides their like potatoes or something. Right? Well, honestly, strategy does look at a lot of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, if in my strategy class we talk quite a bit about how companies like McDonald's work with their suppliers, the people they buy their raw materials from, and then how they take their products and get them to their customers. Because strategy focuses on how firms do their business. So it's everything from who they work with as partners to how they identify their competitive advantage against the other firms in their area. So how does McDonald's differentiate itself from Burger King and successfully compete for customers and things like that. My personal research focuses more on group identity and culture, but strategy focuses on how firms do their business. So in terms of group identity and culture, what is their role in a business and like businesses strategies? Okay. 
Um, well, culture in particular, if you're looking at organizational culture, which sort of bleeds across the areas between OB, org theory, and strategy, yeah. uh, one way that culture is important to strategy is that often an organization's culture is one of its competitive advantages. It's one of the ways that it differentiates itself from its competitors yeah. and allows a company to really stand out. So, for example, if a culture like uh, a company like 3M, they have a culture that really supports exploring new products and doing innovation. And their whole culture is built around the idea that they want people to try out new things and they want to give them the space to fail. Now, other companies' cultures work very differently. Uh, IBM was uh, traditionally was an example of very strict corporate culture. You know, everybody came to work, they wore their blue tie, they wore their suit, they buttoned up their collar. You knew an IBM guy because they all looked the same. They had a fairly rigid culture, but that was because of the type of work they did. They were putting together, uh, you know, mainframe computers, getting that launched out into businesses to help them take care of their knowledge management. And that strict structure inside of their firm allowed them to uh, both present a, 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 an image, that was the word I was looking for, <laughs> present an image to other people that they were very much in control and would be able to help them control the issues they were running into in their organizations and to stay organized when they were doing really complicated work with helping other firms figure out how they were going to manage information. There are companies like Zappos.com where their culture is entirely focused around customer service. And what that means is, for their specific example, uh, employees who work the customer service lines have a much higher amount of authority than many employees do to fix things for customers, to do things for customers, to make them feel like they're really being taken care of. But that's, there's cultural support for that. If an employee says, I'm going to send a gift to this customer because I think they're having a really bad day, and on top of it, we sent them the wrong size shoes, and I really want to make their day better, they're not going to have a supervisor come back and say, what did you spend $20 on? It's an, it's an accepted thing that they're going to decide to spend money for the company to build up these relationships with their customers. In another company, that kind of expenditure because the culture wasn't focused around customer service, would be really questioned. You might get in trouble for giving a gift to a customer because the culture sets the way that people do their work. And by changing those patterns, you change what a company is capable of doing. Okay, so it sounds like like their culture is kind of like, and it's pretty much like an extension of their branding, actually. like. In a lot of cases, the companies that have very strong brands, it uh -huh. builds from the culture that's inside the company. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Um, so, like, over time, has group, like, group identity and culture, like, as a whole, like, I mean, because, I mean, with the addition of, like, social media and stuff, like, has, like, technology or anything changed group culture and identity? Well, I wouldn't say that it's changed group culture and identity in any deep way. Okay. I think that we see culture being affected by these new technologies. How quickly things move in and out of culture is definitely affected. But when we're talking about things like group identities, they tend to be fairly conservative. Mm -hmm. So once a group identity forms, once a culture forms, either of those they tend to change relatively slowly because people 
people don't like their identity shifting, right? Yeah. You don't you don't want to become a new person tomorrow. I mean, sometimes you do. Sometimes you're like, I hate who I am. I want to be somebody else. I'm going to go off and do this. And companies do that with their cultures and their identities as well. Um, but even then, that sounds like it would be kind of gradual. But. It's sometimes gradual. Every once in a while, though, and, and we see this as, as something that, that sometimes when a company has a bad culture, say they've got a culture that has been very toxic okay. and employees hate coming to work because the, the culture of their organization has been that the upper management blames everything on the employees, doesn't give them the resources they need to do their jobs, and they've got huge turnover because employees never stay. And this is the culture of the organization. It's just not good. Uh, a company recognizes that it's failing because of its culture. They bring in new management saying, we want you to fix our culture because we can't keep doing this. We can't, we can't function when employees won't stay. We can't function when people are always miserable at work. So they bring in new management and say, we want a positive culture. Help us build this. And sometimes new management will come in and say, all right, to build a new culture, we have to sweep the deck clean. We're going to get rid of all of the ways that we've been doing things. We're going to change these things. And anybody who can't keep up with this new culture is just going to have to leave. You get rid of all the, the managers who've been hassling their employees, the people who can't live up to new policies. And it can happen very rapidly, but it often happens by getting rid of all of the people who are familiar with the old culture. It's, it's hard for a company to do. Most yeah. companies who try to change their culture quickly like that don't succeed at it because it's, it's difficult. Because culture at its base is the stuff that we take for granted. It's the stuff that we don't think about. It's the way you greet someone when you come into a room. It's the way you say goodbye to people. It's the, the rhythm of how you do your work day to day. And you don't think about that. You just do it. It's like getting up in the morning and brushing your teeth. If that's part of your morning routine, you don't think, oh, today, am I going to brush my teeth? You get up, you brush your teeth, you and you go on with your day. Yeah. Culture is like that. You don't even think about it. So changing something that people don't think of as a changeable thing can be really challenging. Now, you, you raise a really interesting point, though, with the effects of social media and the fast-moving trends in our larger culture outside of organizations. Uh, I think that what we see with this is, you know, we, we see trends that happen much faster than they used to. It, it's, yeah, it takes, yeah. you know, an hour for something to start trending on Twitter and everybody knows about it. Where in the past, it might have taken a week for a particular news story to get all the way across the country. And you might not have as, as immediate an effect because people were hearing about it over time and having a chance to absorb the news before the next big thing was hitting. How that affects organizational culture, I think there's a certain amount of insulation between the culture outside and what happens inside of an organization. Yeah. Again, because of those routines and taken for granted things that you don't really think about. Um, but I do think that the way we use social media changes the way we respond to some of these things. Um, there's a faster pace of things all around us. Innovation seems to be happening faster. Uh, and I say seems to be because a lot of my research is historical. And if you want to hear people sounding stressed out about technology, read people talking about technology in the late 1800s. All of a sudden, there were telegraphs and telephones and automobiles and 
everything was moving too fast and everything was changing too quickly and the whole world was just wildly shifting. So the, were they were they accepting to that or they were like was it too chaotic for them? It stressed people out. Right. Just like people talking about today, you know, social media and how everything is mobile and you can't get away from your phone and all of these things. People talked about those technologies the same way we talk about our technologies. They had the same stresses about everything was changing, everything was moving too fast. How could anyone possibly adjust to all of these changes? So uh, the other area I study in is technology and how people adapt to technology. And, and we talk about it the same way today. It's different technologies, but we have that same sense of being unmoored by the changes in the world around us. So it's, it's really interesting when you go back a hundred years and people are talking about the same things. They're stressed about the same things. It's just different technologies that are stressing them. Okay, so yeah, uh, that's definitely interesting. Like change in general, just, I feel like as humans, we get very comfortable with like patterns and yes. stuff and just like one little change is gonna throw people off completely. Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely, like, seeing that happening, like, as, like, as culture and group identity and just, like, people's values changing, I think I'm not, like, I'm not surprised to hear that people are resistant to that change. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, like, referring to, like, social media and stuff, like, I'm sure you're familiar with cancel culture. Are you yes. familiar with that? So, yeah, yeah, I've heard about it. Is that like, I'm thinking like, does that make people like, does that give people even more of an incentive to make sure their, their culture is straight, like their culture is good? Well, I know that organizations pay attention to social trends and the things that people are concerned about, mm-hmm. uh, because they they don't want negative media, right? Exactly. Now, whether that actually means that they change their culture. I'm really doubtful of that, honestly. Mm. A lot of companies are really good at saying, oh, yes, you know, we really value our employees. We value having diversity in our organization. And they'll say that. And sometimes the person who's saying it even means it. But whether that translates into action is an entirely different kettle of fish. Um, Organizations are really good at saying what people want want to hear from them. Mm. But acting on it is hard work. Uh, if you've got an organization, well, we, we see this in Silicon Valley, right? This is a really big issue in Silicon Valley. A lot of the companies there are uh, majority white male employees, right? Okay. Everybody talks about how important it is to have diversity. That if Silicon Valley is going to be making most of the technology that we're using, it would be really good to have a diverse group of people making this technology because then the technology will reflect the life experience of a broad group of people. And companies like Google say, oh yeah, you know, we really want a diverse workforce and we want to make sure that we're doing all of these things. And if you look at their numbers on diversity over the last 10 years, they've moved a little. They talk about it a lot. They don't change a lot. Uh, They say, oh, yeah, we've done all these initiatives to hire people of different ethnic groups and make sure that we've got enough women represented. And you look at the numbers and it's still highly leaning towards white white male male graduates of Stanford. 
And it's a very narrow view of humanity if that's what you're looking at. And if the majority of our technology is coming from those companies, people push back at it, but it, it doesn't change. And it's not necessarily that these people are saying, oh, we don't really want to do the diversity. Mm-hmm. It's, well, it comes back to culture again, right? The culture of the organization is a certain way that the organization feels. And often when people are hiring, they say, I'm looking for somebody who's going to be a good fit in our organization, who's going to work well with us. And what they think they're saying is, we want someone who fits in with our style of work. And they think that that's not based in socioeconomic class or race or gender. But the truth is, if you've spent most of your life surrounded by a particular group, those are the people you're comfortable with. If you haven't spent time around people from other groups, you're not comfortable with them. So when you interview someone, if you're you know, one of these Silicon Valley guys from Stanford who are white guys from well-off families, they interview somebody who is not a white guy from Stanford, and they're like, yeah, you know, I'm not sure if this person is really going to fit in here. I don't think they're going to be comfortable in our organization. And they say that about the women they interview, the, the people from different ethnic groups they interview, and they're not recognizing that they're saying, these people are different from me and therefore I don't want them in the organization. What they're saying is, you know, I don't think this person understands the way we work. I don't think they're going to be comfortable here. I don't think they're going to enjoy working here. So why would we hire them? We don't want to bring someone in who's going to be unhappy. And the truth is, if you want to create diversity, you have to go through some unhappiness. Uh, business research shows that diversity creates more innovation, but it also creates more stress because you've got people who have different expectations. They're coming out of different cultures. And like I said, culture, it's that stuff you don't think about. It's the things you take for granted. If, if one group of people, and this is going to be a silly example, okay? okay? If one group of people thinks that the appropriate way for greeting someone when they come into a room is to jump up and down three times and clap their hands. And if someone doesn't do that when they come into the room, that means I don't like you and I'm angry at you. And the other group of people think that the appropriate way of greeting someone is to very quietly look at them with their hands pressed together. And that's how you're respecting a person. And if someone doesn't do that, but they're loud, that means that they're being rude to you. These two groups of people without recognizing each other's differences are going to have a really hard time relating, right? They're both going to think the other group is being rude. In truth, they're both being polite to the best of their knowledge. But this, the, the group who claps their hands is going to think that the other group dislikes them because they won't clap their hands. And the quiet group thinks that the other group is really rowdy and loud. They're both being incredibly polite to each other, and they can't tell. That's, that's the difficulty with creating diversity in organizations. Because people acting according to what they believe is the appropriate way to act feels uncomfortable to the people who have different expectations. So it's a, it's a really big challenge because humans aren't omniscient if they don't study culture. They don't see these things. They don't recognize that when they're being polite, they may be being rude by someone else's standards. Because we don't, don't think about it. Yeah, you don't think yeah. about it. I mean, before COVID, when you met someone, you shook hands, right? That was yeah. just the polite thing to do. Exactly. In some cultures, that's, that's not a polite thing to do. <laughs> uh, so... These and it's and it's and it's these small things like this that make someone think, you know, I'm not sure this person is going to be a good fit in our organization. And the 
the lack of understanding that these these underlying cultural things can make you unconsciously uncomfortable makes diversity difficult. And it means that if you want to do diversity, you have to recognize that you've got to step beyond that. And that's a lot of what we see people frustrated about with cancel culture, right? They're frustrated that people are not reaching across those boundaries. And it's often because people think they are, but they're doing it poorly. Or, I mean, obviously, there are people who are just mean or rude. Mm. But a lot of organizations fail at this in spite of the fact that they're doing the best that they know how. Because they don't know how to look at some of the things they need to look at. At least, as somebody who focuses on culture, I think that's the problem. I'm sure other people with different focuses will tell you other things that cause problems there. But I think a lot of it is culture. Just these things we take for granted as being innately true. We believe that they're true. And until we question them, it's really hard to step across those boundaries. And so people do things that are very upsetting to other people, not necessarily intentionally. And then someone else says, hey, you were horrible and you did this bad thing. And they're going, I don't understand why you're yelling at me. I don't get it. I was being really polite to you by jumping up and down and clapping my hands. Why are you saying I'm a rude person? <laughs> you know, and and it's not always that. Sometimes yeah. it's, it's willful misunderstanding of what people are saying. But I, I don't know that organizations are always good at responding to these things in a meaningful way because of these underlying issues. Yeah, I mean, from the outside looking in, I think it kind of starts at the top, like in terms of the uh, the diversity mm-hmm. and just like the change in that. Um, like, I feel like this is like you were saying, like it's an ignorance of their own discrimination kind of right. like they don't even really know. And um going back to like what you studied like i think that's it might have something to do with that like anthropology like people like humans in general when they're like i don't know maybe they might just they they kind of like comfortable with one thing mm-hmm. or in this in this instance they might be comfortable with what they've grown up with seeing people right. that look like them they're more likely to pick somebody that looks like them to join or the acts like them because yeah. there's the the class issues too that we don't like to talk about a lot in the united states but mm-hmm. Uh, people who grow up in different socioeconomic strata behave differently. Yeah. And it's those same kinds of things that make you feel this person isn't responding right to the things that I'm saying. They don't talk about the things that I think are interesting. And that causes stresses. It, and diversity requires recognizing you're going to have to deal with those stresses. You're going to have to talk through them and work through them to get there. But it's hard. And a lot of times people don't, they don't recognize the work needs to be done. And even if they do, they may not want to do it because it is hard. Yeah, that's definitely, yeah. I think it's a, <laughs> that's definitely a strong topic because, I mean, that's kind of like a trickle down effect. Like it starts from there, but then it affects people that are trying to get jobs too. So Absolutely. it's definitely an yeah. uh, important topic. From all your research, like... What's the most surprising thing that you learned? Like, I know it's probably a lot. Because uh, I saw, like, you were researching, like, I was looking at your um, at your page. And I forgot what was on there, but it was, like, uh, a lot. Like, you studied, like, librarianship. Mm-hmm. And then you studied just, like, a wide array of things. So, like, what's the most, like, surprising thing? Yeah. I 
think, as you remember. I think the most surprising thing so far that I've studied, that I've, that I've found in my studies, is something I mentioned before, how little people change over time. Uh, one of my big projects on libraries looks at a century and a half of data. And you would think that if you go back to the mid to late 1800s, that people would have different concerns, right? But they don't. They're freaked out about new technology and trying to figure out how this is going to affect their jobs. They're trying to figure out how to deal with their day-to-day -day lives and balance that with their work. Uh, things, I, you know, what a, my, my first big project that I looked at was how librarians adapted their profession over the period of time that we've had public libraries in the U.S. And that starts in about the 1860s or so and moves to the present. And if you look at this field, 130, 140 years later, they're still talking about the same issues. How do we make sure that we are providing education for every person in this entire country? Because we know education is the central support of having a functional democracy. This is why public libraries exist, right? They've been talking about this since the 1860s. They're still talking about this now. Now in the 1860s, they had libraries where if you wanted to get, if you wanted to read a book, you had to go up to the desk, they would check your fingernails to make sure that your hands were clean. You would ask for a particular book, they would go into the back to the shelves, find that one book, give it to you, and you would sit down in the room where the librarian could watch you and read you your book. You had to read it, yeah. You couldn't take it home. Wow. They gradually started letting people take books home. And you know, now they've got ebooks that you can check out without even going into the library. But the core ideas of the profession are still, how do we educate people in a way that supports democracy? Over, over 100 years, and they're still having the same conversations, how do we make sure that people who don't have as many resources still have access to all of this knowledge? A century and a half, and they've still got the same issues. How do we deal with this new technology that's making our lives more difficult? How do we make sure people can get knowledge? And, it, and it's people using the exact same language 100 years later, talking about different technology, but the same issue around it. Humans are humans, and we, we don't, at our cores, change. I think when you look at a profession, the identity is based on these core ideas that they care about, just like humans are based on core drives. We care about each other, even if we don't want to admit it sometimes. Mm -hmm. We worry about our own safety. We want to make a life that is pleasant for us and the people we care about. Um, and it doesn't really change. It, it, the surface changes, the particular issues that you're worried about. Obviously librarians in the 1890s weren't worried about the internet, but in the 1990s that was the center of what they were talking about. The issues of, uh, going back to what we've been talking about with diversity, of including larger groups of people, we've, we've had trouble with that forever. We get better sometimes. We get worse sometimes. I think the important thing is recognizing that all the time we're human, we're flawed, and we're struggling. <laughs> and we have these ideas that, are, that we're stuck on of things that we think are true that we never question. 
And it's that lack of questioning that causes us trouble when we don't question the base ideas. Librarians have hung on to this, this core idea of education for democracy. And I think it's an awesome idea. Um, but they've also held on to some ideas that aren't always as helpful, that they need to mediate between people and information. Um, that doesn't work very well in the age of social media, right? The information is out there all over the place. Yeah, they can get it themselves. And so librarians are trying to redefine what their role is in helping people get information. And instead of mediating, it's more like helping people learn how to find information that's useful. But when the internet first started really being taken up, that was a real struggle because librarians were used to being, you came to them and you said, how do I find information on this? And they said, ah, I will take you to the resources on that. And now they've got people going out and finding their own resources and the librarians are like, ah, oh, but you're going to bad resources. This is not good information. <laughs> how can I help you find better information? And they've, they've had to reinvent themselves to a certain extent. But at the same time, it's still the same ideas. Yeah, How still, do we make sure people are educated? Yeah, so like instead of like going like maybe like 15, 20 years ago, instead of trying to help them find a book, you're kind of like giving them, uh, like a lot of times we were learning in classes. I've been in so many classes where they're just like showing you how to find resources online. Right. And going step by step and where's the best place to look. And that's the really important place, the best place for you to look, because there's so many bad resources out there that if they can help guide you towards resources that are more likely to give you good information, they're helping you get that education, right? Mm -hmm. Because libraries have always been about people finding things on their own, but helping people learn how to find those things. But it's harder when people can just go to Google and skip the library altogether, you know, but yeah, I can talk about libraries forever. <laughs> so uh, you published, um... You published some of your research in journals. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what was that experience like being able to publish that? Oh, well, I will say it's a long and winding road in my particular field. Um, How long did it take? It depends on the paper. I have, I had, I think, one paper where it took only a year and a half. That was a short paper. There's a paper I'm working on right now that's under its second revision at a journal. And I started working on this particular project the first year of my PhD program. So we've been working okay. on this for longer than I want to count back to. <laughs> it's been seven years or more. <laughs> that's a long time. It's a long time. I mean, that's from, you know, data collection to analyzing the data, writing the paper, submitting it for a, a journal where it was rejected after three rounds of reviews submitting it again for a special issue where it was rejected after two rounds so what of was the re what was the rejection like, like how uh, it, they didn't feel it was a good fit in one case the first journal we submitted it to uh, was mostly a quantitative journal and this is a qualitative paper so rather than mm. you know analyzing numbers we're analyzing stories okay. um, and our reviewers I don't think they they I don't think they were comfortable with the methods we were using, and I don't think we developed the paper to the point that it could be. I think, honestly, seven years later, this paper is a lot better than it was the first time we submitted it. Okay. We've had some great reviewers who gave us feedback on it. Um, What's the paper about? It is about how uh, companies develop different types of innovation. Okay. So when they do uh, incremental innovation of 
adding components to their products to make them a little bit better versus when they decide to completely redesign the product and make an entirely new version of the product. Okay. And based on their capabilities, what they're good at. So oh, so that's so they rejected you basically because they're like more like were they focusing on like statistical things? Uh, the the first place we submitted was really a journal that that had not published a lot of qualitative data, uh, and so I think our reviewers were mostly folks who were more comfortable with quantitative. Um, but on top of that, I think the paper wasn't as developed as we okay. we have gotten it to now. I don't think it was as good as as we would have well as we've gotten it now. I think it needed a little bit more work, mm-hmm. and you hope that it doesn't take you seven years of revisions to get yeah, a paper a where it needs to go. <laughs> But this one has been a little bit sticky. <laughs> most of them don't take this long. Uh, most of them, I think, it's about a two or three year process really? between collecting data to getting it published. But this one's a little bit longer. So, like, do they, like, how, to get it published, like, do they reach out to you or you reach out to them? Like, what's that whole, like, well, what happened? Well, how, how the process works is once you've got a paper that you think is probably good enough to get published, which usually means you've presented it at a conference or two and gotten feedback from a lot of people, uh, you submit the paper to a journal that you think is going to be a good fit. Uh, if the editor thinks it sounds plausible, they ask uh, two or three other people to review the paper. And so the editor plus two or three other people will read through the paper. They'll, they'll co- write a letter essentially saying, this is what we think works, this is what we think doesn't work. And they'll give a recommendation to the editor about whether they think it should be published. Usually the first time through, you get a whole bunch of feedback and they say, well, we like what you're doing so far, but here are the things we think you need to fix. And so you take that list of things, you go back to the paper, you see what you can fix. You maybe disagree with some of them and say, well, you know, we're we're not going to change this because uh, we think you actually misunderstood what we were doing. So let us explain better what we were doing and clarify that for you instead of changing it. You rewrite the paper. This takes between three to five months. You resubmit it back to the journal. They send it back out to the reviewers. They give you feedback again. Hopefully, less feedback. Less feedback. <laughs> <laughs> you do it, and, and they might accept it on the second review, but in my experience, in my field at least, usually you go through a second round of edits and send it back in again. At the third okay. review, they either say, yes, we're going to publish it, or no, we don't think you got the paper to where we want it to be. Good luck finding someplace else to publish it. <laughs> And that usually takes about a year and a half to get through three rounds of reviews. Okay. So that's actually that's I mean, I think a year and a half isn't that bad. It's not too bad if you know the paper comes together and you get it published. If you go a year and a half and then they say, you know, after all, no, let's not do that. Uh, It's a bit disappointing, but you know, you let it sit for a month and you go back to it with your co-authors and say, okay. Where's the next journal we can send yeah, this to? How do we fix that last set of problems? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that definitely, I mean, so how many times, like, how many times have you gotten a journal published? I mean, published uh, in a journal, I mean. Let me see. I think, honestly, I can't remember now. I think it's five or six papers wow. now. So that's a lot. So you've been through um, it a couple, you've been through it a, I mean. I've been through it a, a, quite a lot, yeah. yeah. It's... Uh, you know, with with the type of research I do, I it's it's a slow process. Um, if you talk to somebody who does more quantitative data, where they're more focused on doing statistics, 
uh, I would suspect that somebody at my stage would probably have more papers published because uh, quantitative research from what I've seen generally is a bit faster to get from the collecting data to the writing the paper stage. Not always, but in a lot of cases, it's a bit faster. Uh, and there are more people who do quantitative research, so it's easier to find reviewers who really understand what you're doing. Uh, you don't have to spend as much time explaining why you did the method that you did. And so it's, it's just, I think it's a little bit, our, the, the management field focuses more on quantitative than qualitative. So you just, it's an easier conversation to start. You're not having to explain why you want to talk about it in the first place. <laughs> okay. But, and the, the research just takes longer with qualitative. So. Yeah, um, I'm thinking like, so would it be, would it be accurate to say that, like the edits themselves, are the edits, is it still the same length of time? Because, I mean, you're not, because qualitative is like, you're more dealing with like, you're not dealing with, numbers and facts as opposed to quantitative with with qualitative you're dealing with different types of facts but they're not yeah. quantitative facts they're not numbers uh -huh. so rather than doing a statistical regression on your data you do a qualitative analysis okay. where you a lot of my research looks at what people say about their professions or uh -huh. how people talk about their companies or the culture of their companies and that means that instead of having a, a database of numbers that you can run through a statistical software package to find out what that set of numbers can tell you, you read uh, tens of thousands of pages of articles or notes on interviews, and you have to look at that and determine what the patterns are. And you have to do it not with numbers, but with keeping track of what people say, tracking how often they mention particular topics and things like this. And in my experience, I've done quantitative research and I don't, I will never say that quantitative research is easier, but it generally moves a little bit more quickly. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So what's, what do you think is the, was the most important conclusion that you could have made from your research and like the impact that it has on group identity? from organizations? Let's see, that, that's a hard question. Um, I guess what I would say is the, the most important outcome that I've come up with is when you're working with identity, you are dealing with things that are very, very personal for people. Um, and so with culture and identity both, if you want change to happen with these things, you have to take into account that what you are doing is challenging someone's sense of self. That means that you have to be very thoughtful about the ways that you're going to try to implement change. And you have to recognize that every change you try to make is going to have a ripple effect. It's not simple. It's not like pulling a lever on a machine and you can speed it up and slow it down there has to be a lot more of an iterative process when you're trying to change group identity or you're trying to change a culture. Because you can't be certain what's going to happen when you make a change. People are going to respond to it based on their understanding of the larger picture. And it's very personal. It interacts with who they believe they are. And you have to be patient. 
quick change is not going to happen in culture. If it does, it's going to be violent. <laughs> and and yeah. it may not be at all pleasant. Um, but you have to remember that in organizations, you're dealing with human beings. In spite of the fact that most of my research is at the group or the firm level, you have to remember that all of these things are dealing with humans, with people who have lives and whose lives are going to be affected by the decisions that you make as a manager trying to keep your company going. Um, and it's hard work because it's complicated, it's convoluted, it's entangled. And that means it's never going to be simple. All of the wonderful books that, we, that people publish for businesses on quick ways to fix your culture, don't trust them. It's hard work, it's thoughtful work, it's rewarding work if you do it well, but there's no quick fix. Mm, yeah. <laughs> That's a really good life lesson, I think, actually. Like, you can't, like, in anything, really, you can't just change things that quickly and then expect it to be smooth. Like, there's going to, like, you have to, like, you have to consider what the other person or what other people are, like, going through in their own lives. Exactly. And make that change easy, make that change easier for them. Like, you mm -hmm. have to be, like considerate of that yeah so yeah that's i think that's a good life lesson and it's it's not surprising to see that also be the same thing like with group identity and culture and businesses and yeah. change within businesses so yeah that's good um but yeah we could wrap it up there that's okay i think we had a good conversation thank you you're very for, uh, welcome joining me yeah <laughs> but yeah that's all we have for today